No. It's enough. Even torturing you is boring. This is the small council. Alright, welcome back everybody to another episode of Small Council Radio. On tonight I have with me my co-host Cyrus. Thank you so much uh, for being on and holding down the fort with your uh, your content you've been putting out, uh, on over the last couple weeks. I have been doing my best. Uh, I've had the idea of doing those buyer's guides for a little bit and I was just glad to be able to get those produced and uploaded and out for the people to enjoy and it still happens. I'll be on Facebook or Discord, and a new player will pop in. Do you have any recommendations? And my totally unbiased opinion is for them to come to Small Council Radio to check out the buyer's guides. <laughs> nice. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it was definitely nice uh, that you had those uh, ready to fire off because uh, the last couple of weeks were a bit rough. Um, been picking up shifts nonstop and just been uh, hard to schedule some episodes, but I'm glad to be back. I uh, had been having uh, the thought of doing this episode for a while now, and uh, with that said, I want to uh, introduce uh, our special guest, a returning guest of over two years now. Um, you know, it was two years ago when we did this episode, uh, and it was, in my opinion, it is still arguably one of the best episodes we've ever done. Um, you know, easy top five, if not like uh, top two, uh, between uh, this topic and uh, like gaming etiquette, I think were some of our best episodes. So without further ado, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Brian from Big Top Gaming. Yay. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this will this will be real fun. I always appreciate uh, gaming etiquette is super fun to talk about, but I think our topics today are going to be pretty sweet, especially our our hero box. Oh yeah. Um, so for those that didn't listen to the original, um, it is not required like listening to listen to the original. Uh, uh, episode of the meta mentality if you haven't seen the topic already in the in the title but uh definitely go and check that one out because i guarantee between this episode and that episode there's going to be differences especially because back then we had six people on for that episode so it's a bit crazy this one is just us three for tonight the original episode is myself brian brett justin jose chris uh and yeah it was a little hectic uh, but with that said uh you know, because the the show may or may not be a bit shorter than the last one because of less people, um, we're we're going to kind of discuss the our general thoughts of the um, leaked Hero Box Three. I know some people will say it's well, it's not technically leaked because they bought the box, but you know what I'm saying. It's it's out before everyone else pretty much has the chance to get it, and we've now seen images, and it's not on the uh, the app. Uh, but we will be doing an episode where we break down all the abilities and everything, so stay tuned for that episode. But for this one, we're just going to kind of, um, you know, give our general thoughts. Um, but, you know, 
with that said, uh, to kind of just go back to the main uh, topic of this show, it is the trappings of meta-mentality. Uh, for those that aren't necessarily familiar with what uh, we're referring to, um, to just overall like general uh, description of it would be just getting stuck in the mindset of a meta, uh, you know, and being trapped in that meta. Um, so I hope uh, I hope you guys are excited. I know I am. Uh, but before we get into that, we will we'll discuss kind of the the hero box, uh, you know. Uh, I'll start with you, Brian. What what were your kind of general impressions of the Hero Box? Uh, I'm really excited for it, not just because um, I'm excited about anything they release, really. I think that the Targaryens have kind of gotten the short end of the stick over the last uh, year or so with uh, uh, Hero releases. I mean, not that they were terrible or anything, but we had, like, uh, the, the Blood Riders were just attachments plus a unit that Khal Drogo could only take advantage of. And we didn't get a second version of him, which I think was kind of a, a missed opportunity there. And then we had the mother of dragons who did bring two different versions. I think, um, you know, we, and we lived in dragon apocalypse for a while. So they, it was a cool release, but it just wasn't diverse. And I feel like uh, this hero box is super duper diverse and gives Targaryens a lot of new things to do and kind of manipulate their army in exciting ways. Yeah, I, I agree that, uh, you know, Targaryens are definitely in a weird spot. You know, a lot of people would argue that Targaryens are not very, not very strong without Drogo uh, and their options. They have a decent amount of options, but because they are that, that faction that uh, is, you know, for lack of better words, uh, like a hodgepodge of different units being all put together between the Unsullied, Stormcrow, Dothraki, um, like the freed, uh, the freed people. I'm sure we'll get more stuff. But uh, you know, they're they don't seem to be as coherent, uh, and I think this hero box will help a little bit. I think as time goes on, the more that's released for Targaryens, will kind of really you'll start to see the grand the grand picture for the faction uh cyrus what's uh what's your take on it well we got some untamed uh direwolves here in the show here we're talking targaryens <laughs> at least we don't have dragons that we have to worry about uh so yeah i agree with uh what brian was saying it is kind of a feels bad when you have a hero's box that is very limited in its scope uh, that happened to the Free Folk as well with their Heroes 2 just being two giants. And you feel like you might be falling behind in your options. And that there's that way for Targaryens. They're kind of, they've been pretty limited on their NCUs for a while. And it'll be nice to get some, some new NCU options and some new attachment options and uh, some new commanders. I think they've... Uh, been short on commanders now i'm not going to feel sorry for any faction that has drogo in it but i do feel like they are getting some welcome uh additions here in this uh this new heroes box that we're going to talk about i agree um and again we're not going to go into each and every uh you know card and ability but uh, we'll we'll just briefly uh, talk about um, 
our favorite thing that we saw in the box. Uh, Cyrus, we'll start with you. Out of everything in there, just one card, you know, so like either just the NCU or attachment or commander, what is the one thing you're the most excited about in the box? So I'm looking at Quaith. Uh, that is a very unique and very interesting ability set that she's bringing. The fact that, uh, so we'll go ahead and read it out here. Quaith begins the game with two order tokens on her. At the start of an enemy turn, you may remove an order token and then target one enemy unit. If you perform some action this turn before resolving that action, one of your friendly combat units may perform a maneuver, march, or retreat action. So what that allows you to do is it's very similar to predictable maneuvers where you can wait until the very end of the round and their last combat unit, you you know they're going to have to re- do an action. Or if you're in a situation where you're engaged and you might die, you could instead target the unit that could attack that unit and retreat out of there without potentially being attacked. So, and this is, uh, they have to pick, if I'm reading this right, they have to pick which action they're going to do before you do it. So they're going to pick their action and before resolving that action, you get to do your thing. So if they pick melee attack and then you retreat, they can't change their mind and say, I'm charging you now. So I think that that Quaith is going to give a lot of interesting options to, you know, the cavalry, you know, the, the, uh, the Dothraki, even to some of the Unsullied, that are going to allow them to be, you know, just a little bit more unpredictable and, and harder to pin down. So I, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that card. I agree. I think uh, you know, and she's only four points. Um, I say only four. But, you know, that's the lowest uh, NCU is as far as we know. Um, and so she'll definitely be interesting to see. Uh, you know, how she kind of plays out because she's very similar to Arya, um, just with a little twist. You know, obviously there's, in a way she's stronger than Arya, but there's a way around her, obviously, um, by just choosing a different unit or, you know, or choosing no action if, like, you happen to not be engaged. But there's definitely ways to, like, force her through uh, just like like you were saying, predictable maneuvers. So right when I read what she did, immediately I, because uh, I kind of correlate the two, um, I got like Mance Raider vibes because you know Mance Raider has that predictable maneuvers card. Um, Brian, what do you think about Quace? I'm pretty stoked for it. I think that uh, the Targaryens, at least within this whole uh, hero set get a lot more controlling factors added to their list. And I think Quaith is going to be one of those pieces that gets really annoying for a lot of people who end up uh, getting paired up against someone who's running it. Yep, I agree. I think uh, Quaith is going to have a uh, a high learning curve, but once you've kind of learned all the ins and outs of her ability, it's going to be incredibly strong. Uh, I would say my initial thought was two orders wasn't enough, but I think the more I think about it and the more I kind of really, you know, I think about her potential is where I almost think 
in a lot of lists, she's going to be a must-take. Like, not not an auto-include, but just she's going to be really good, and you're going to see her in a lot of lists. That's just my that's my current thought. Um, all right, uh, Brian, what uh, what are you most looking forward to in this uh, box? So kind of along the lines of uh, control, uh, I think that um, Skahaz Mokandak is one of my big picks for commanders. I And I'm, I'm not quite sure if I can attest to the efficacy of how he's going to play as a commander within the Targaryen faction. But when I look at the cards, they're that kind of thing where I don't think you can really visualize what he does until you put him on the table because every single one of his cards controls the game in some way, shape, or form. And when you compound, like, you know, we take Quaith and... Uh, Skahaz here and throw them in with the toolkit that the Targaryens have access to, you can just really come out of a lot of weird places and and set up some strange peace trades or unwinnable situations for your opponent on the table. And uh, I, I think that he really kind of turns that on. So I think uh, in terms of the one that I have to really play a lot to unpack the most, the one that I'm most excited about, it would definitely be him as a commander. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, I would agree that, uh, you know, he definitely has, like, a lot of this control aspect, uh, which, uh, funny enough, this is who I was going to pick as what I'm the most excited <laughs> for uh, because of that same reason. Um, I think they did a great uh, – uh, I think his cards are in, like, a great design space uh, and add a lot of variety to – uh, what the Targaryens already have as far as commanders. Um, so this will this will be a nice little uh, you know uh, you know fresh air you know uh, of creativity with list building. Um, what do you think, uh, Cyrus? Yeah, he looks really good. And to Brian's point, it's not obvious. Uh, what he's going to do. He's not like assault orders where, you know, he's going to give you, you know, free attacks or, or, you know, devastating impact where it's just obvious what his cards do. There's a little bit more nuance to him, you know, a little bit more setup, but I think that it's going to be really effective in a lot of armies. So yeah, I, I can't disagree with anything. I also think it's worth mentioning that he does strip from the Targaryen deck probably one of the more, um, I don't know, I, not it's one of the cards that I don't think I find my it's, I find myself pitching it a lot because it really does depend on what's on the table. Like Unstoppable Advance can either be really really awesome or really garbage, and he just makes it so you don't have to deal with that because the card that he slots in for that is one hundred percent going to happen. Yeah, it uh definitely adds a lot of uh a lot of flexibility um to any Targaryen list, I think. And uh even you know, since that was gonna be my pick, I'll go with my second pick, which uh of course was what Cyrus picked. So I will go with my third <laughs> pick. Uh <laughs> um which would be uh uh Miri Mazdur, is that how you say her name? Um yep. her NCU. So, if I'm not mistaken, she's four points. Um, yeah, she, the only 5.1 is uh, his dar. Okay, yeah. So, 
she uh, each time she claims his own to restore one wound to a friendly combat unit. Super, super good because healing in general is, I think, undervalued a lot of the time. And so even just that free wound just for claiming his own, I think, is a nice little buff. But then she also has, uh, each time she claims his own, you can replace it with target one friendly combat unit and attach one previously destroyed friendly non-commander attachment to that unit, replacing a model as usual, but ignoring the usual attachment limits. Uh, this is incredibly strong. Um, especially with unsullied officers being a thing. So I'm, you know, you can almost like suicide an unsullied officer. And then uh, I guess the question would be is can you duplicate the same destroyed attachment multiple times? Um, could you basically suicide an unsullied officer and then every round bring in a new one uh, and now have all these free points. I feel like, though she's super interesting, it is, I guess, a little concerning. Um, you know, maybe some unintended uh, things that you can do with her. But again, I guess that would be whether or not you can duplicate the same destroyed attachment. Because I think if you can't, I think that'd be still be fair. I mean, you had to suicide your uh, <laughs> your unsullied officer to then just get an unsullied officer. What do you think, Cyrus? Yeah, if this was a visual medium, you probably would insert that mind-blown gif where the guy's just like, you know, waving <laughs> above his head. I hadn't considered that as a possibility. Now, it doesn't sound right to me that you you could just keep bringing on the same attachment, but it, it's possible. I don't know. That would require clarification if the identity of that destroyed attachment stays the same throughout whether it's destroyed or not, or if it can just keep coming back because it was previously destroyed. I'm not sure. Uh, I did mention that when I, when we first saw that, that, you know, the unsullied officer is, you know, something that you could you know bring back and it's a very good value for that. Problem is, is you're going to need to bring multiple infantry units and then have one of them die in order to get value from it. Now, you could bring back some of the cavalry attachments, like uh, some of the ones that came with uh, the Heroes 2 box, uh, because it, it doesn't require it to be infantry. It could be a cavalry attachment. Uh, it's just, it just seems to be a little bit too restrictive in what you, what you can bring back. Uh, I would not be as excited for this one if it allows you to bring back a commander or if it allows you to bring back any destroyed attachment like Jack and Hagar can, uh, that would be a little bit more interesting. But because it's limited to friendly and it's because it's limited to non-commander, I, I think it's just a little bit too niche. I think that Miri is yeah. a good tech pick if you're speaking kind of not to segue into our, our main discussion here, but um, I think a lot of the reasons why people stay away from the three-point activation units is because of the prevalence or 
or perceived prevalence of expert dualists. And I think Miri is one of those models where when she does something, when she claims a zone and doesn't have to replace it. So that's already value town. And if you're worried about bringing those unsullied officers and losing them to something like uh, uh, Loris or something like that, or a Jamie, then you have insurance against that. And your opponents just can be like, okay, well, I guess I'll just kill it every turn. And then you'll just bring it back every time. Yep. That's a great point. Uh, but very good expert duelist insurance. Yep. I think, uh, especially if, you know, um, right before we kind of do that segue, cause I kind of see where you're getting at, uh, Brian, uh, it does seem weird that it, uh, and I understand, I guess I understand why for like game balance, but I see, it seems weird that the stipulation is a non commander attachment because in the books and show the only thing she brings back is Drogo. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, can't imagine Drogo not being a commander, meaning like she's going to be able to bring back everything that isn't what she brought back in the books. Part of me has a, a, a sneaking suspicion that Miri was designed when they still had the, the, um, the commanders scoring more within the mission packs, and they maybe thought it would be too big for her to bring back um, commanders into uh into that scoring situation so maybe that could be the possibility or there's just weird commander jumping that they might have been worried I, I don't know i'm not sure what it what it would be like what this what the balance point of this is but i don't think i immediately see it given the world that we live in right now with the game uh, especially no, not... when you can sort of do that already with uh the Greyjoys. but go ahead cyrus I'm not the biggest fan of discussions devolving into what we wish that these new attach these new units or these new uh, you know boxes would have been. We do that sometimes, but I think it's a missed opportunity with her ability not to have the thing that she brings back to life come back less. Like I, I would like say to, something like that too. Like yeah, that, that's kinda... like. If it has multiple abilities, maybe it comes back minus one of their abilities. Uh, or they pump I, their unit for a wound every time they activate or complete yeah, an action. Just, just something like that. I think that that was just a misdesign with, with her thing. Now, it, w- it probably wouldn't have been very good uh, with her card as it's written, but maybe you could have added just a little bit more you know, to it to, to account for that drawback that you're getting. But I just think it would have been cool if they would have done something like that. Yep, I agree. Um, but overall, I think she's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to kind of throw her on the table and see how I can manipulate, um, and not necessarily like manipulate in in the way of breaking her, but just the cool combos I can kind of achieve with her. So I'm kind of excited for that. But to kind of segue, uh, Brian, I see what you're getting at with, uh, with. You know the mentality of the meta and an expert duelist. You know whether or not you may think that uh, the meta is dictating expert duelist or this or that. Um, what uh, what are your? I'll let you kind of take it away. You did uh, you did a pretty good job uh, with the last episode, kind of laying the groundwork for this uh, this episode or this topic. Yeah, I think uh, especially kind of rounding the corner on our adaptation to a pandemic world, um, or at least, you know, I I won't say post-pandemic, but more so like we've just kind of adapted in a different way to it. Um, I think that the meta mentality 
has kind of changed a little bit um, in terms of uh, what it means. I think a lot of us are stuck in a meta that may be a year old or so, and especially a meta that comes from uh, mostly internet games or from a very small portion of people who were willing to travel around when it was maybe a little bit more questionable. Um, but I think that uh, there's, because I, I think the, I mean, we can all see it in uh, online results where like, uh, I think people still believe that Jon Snow is just an extreme boogeyman and that they need to build around that. I think that uh, Baratheons, even though it seems like they might have fallen out of favor a little bit, still have their um, their meta boogeyman shoes on. But I think a lot of these opinions get formulated off of data that's a, a little bit more narrow, like it comes from specific metas or specific um like especially in online tournament formats, those aren't always representative of the community as a whole. It's representative of people who are willing to engage in the game through uh, TTS. And that's where you can really spill the numbers a lot too. Maybe I'm just splintering into too many topics because I have too many things to complain about with that kind of thought, thought pattern. But like if somebody's going to throw like six units of Riders of Highgarden on the table or something like that, that's not going to happen in a real world table situation it's just what somebody's throwing together on tts because they don't care you know i maybe that's maybe that's too many springboarding points for you to start that conversation off but I, maybe i need someone to rein me in a little bit <laughs> you're good cyrus what do you think yeah the the trappings of the meta mentality is is very well worded because i think it can it can trap you 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 get it stuck in your head that you want to build the best, most competitive list, even starting out. I mean, it, it doesn't fail when we're on Facebook or Discord. A newer player probably just joined the social medias and just bought their army and they throw up a, a list that they have. And you can tell in the comments as the people are starting to type, they're counting how many activations it has. And if they're using a unit that's not played, they'll tell them to take it out. Or And these, these recommendations coming from the player base to this new player that doesn't know, I mean, it's, it's helpful if, they're, if they have something that is you know, absolutely useless in their list that, that they, they don't want to try. But activation shaming, uh, you know, uh, underpowered unit uh, dismissal, that sort of thing, I don't think it's helpful, especially to new players. And then that new player gets it in their head that they need to build their lists in a, in a more competitive meta way. And then they take it, but they had, they don't have that experience, you know, in running that list. So then they try it themselves and then they get crushed because of their lack of experience. And they feel like that, you know, they feel like a failure. I'm running the best list but I'm losing. There must be something wrong with me. They're, they're not getting that. You need to you need to slow your your. You don't need to slow your roll, but need, you need to slow play it into the game and not try to jump into the most meta or the most advanced lists early on. And your community can do that to you too. If you're in a community that just runs all the meta stuff, you feel like you can't play stuff that you want to play for fun because it might not be powerful as the rest of the meta in your community and you might be getting crushed that way too so it, there there's a lot of trappings and a lot of negativity that can happen with with thinking like this 
in other games they call it you know net listing or or net decking and i think a lot of the fun in playing the game is finding your own lists you know and, and your own uh little little wrinkles in your list building taking into your community and surprising some people uh i kind of actually got away from that uh in some of my list building i've been running you know things that you would expect to see and I've been having the results that you might expect. It's it's been mixed because it, the lists aren't mine. There are other people's that have built it before me, and they've run it differently than maybe I do. And I would just recommend to anybody listening, you know, build your own stuff, build what you want to play, and then learn the insides and outs of that. And before you know it your list may become the new meta because you have discovered a wrinkle that maybe other people have may have looked over. Yeah, and I, I think will now it's, step off my soapbox now. I, I think it's really important to note in a lot of that discussion that like the meta only exists as much as the community invests in it. Right. Um, you, I think when people talk about meta lists and how you have to play the game, I know activation count was something that was mentioned, and it seems like that's where people really draw their attention to is that, do I run that 4-3 split or do I run a 5-2 split? What's the what's the formula? Like, I need to figure out how to get to this number in order to make sure I can, you know, tip those scales, or if is there a faction that I can go ahead and try and squeeze out like nine activations out of, especially when we think about like the Mance lists, like where is the tipping point and like, is it because Mance is a good commander? Or is it because we can get up to like 10 activations and kind of shut people out? But then when we, when people think that there's an answer to how many act, there's a, a specific answer to how many activations should a list have, I think that uh, they just need to go over and take a look at some of the Minnesota players, Mark, or yeah, Mark Rupp, ex especially because he ended up taking in last in last Adepticon floated himself up to the second second place at the finals table with just two lists with one NCU, and that's unheard of. I know locally I've played uh, double one NCU lists that were one of them was man. So I guess I can, you know, I might be riding his coattails a little bit, but I had a, a mag list that was one NCU and I three owed that event with mag being two of those games. And I think uh, it's important for people to notice that the meta is a social construct. It's not a formulaic one. So as long as people are trying new things and not just following whatever the vocal minority is telling them to do, I think you can find a lot of really cool things to, uh, to kind of boost up your game a bit. Yeah, I think uh, an important thing to bring up is that, you know, something we kind of didn't mention because I listened to, I, I, to just refresh my memory, of the, I listened to the, uh, the previous show for this topic. And, you know, we make it, uh, in that episode, we make a good point to, you know, that we're not, like, throwing jabs at, because I'm sure we'll get into it uh, in in the discussion, uh, throwing jabs at, like, the stats and, you know, everything you can find at uh, Song of Fire, Ice and Fire stats .com. Um It's an important thing to understand that we didn't mention is that the meta is what it is in the here and now. And, you know, it's what's taking place. And so as they show it, are true. Like, it is what it is. It shows you the truth, but it's showing you data sets 
based on the here and now. That is not to say that, because uh, the meta will always change. Uh, and uh, at the point in which it doesn't change, that's, I think, uh, Brian said it perfectly in, in the last show, is that that's when, you know, the game kind of will probably die out. You know, that's when it, things get stagnated. But um, back to kind of my original point is that the meta is the here and now. It's the data set that we have. But we're discussing, you know, getting yourself out of that funk, getting yourself to explore more. Uh, and, the, you know, because the meta is what you make it. Um, and a lot of times the meta when it's not evolving or not changing is often because not as many people are branching out and looking for new ways to conquer what is considered the meta. Yeah, I think uh, my, my uh, what's the word I'm looking for? My, my fero not ferociousness so much, my virtuosity or zealousness when, I, when it comes to talking about data abuse is not me trying to throw my elbow down on ice and fire stats or anything like that. I think um, what they, they're presented with data and the data tells them a thing. I think the, the danger as someone who works with data often is that when we try to extrapolate data from a set that's been given to us and that all over the game. I think that the only thing the, the data you collect can tell you is about that specific point in time, like you were getting at. Um, it doesn't say that whatever happens on stats is exactly what's going to be happening in your local area. So it's really important to only look at data in the context that it's been presented. So when someone says Jon Snow is the best commander in the game, that's only accurate from the data set you're pulling it from. It doesn't mean that in the, you know, southwest area of California that Jon Snow should be tabling left and right. They might be playing some totally different meta where, like, you know, Targaryens are taking tournaments left and right because they just have, like, one of the best Targaryen players in the country. Yeah, there's a constant struggle between the analytics side of things and the eye test. This happens in sports. You got sabermetrics in baseball. You got analytics in football. And a, a analytics guy in baseball can say, this guy here, he's hitting 350 while hitting left-handed on Friday nights after it's uh, rained the day before. It's like, okay, that's that's information. That's true. That is what has happened before. It is not a predictor of the future, though. And analytics and stats are not a predictor of what will happen. It is telling you what has happened and sometimes that and sometimes often that that is useful information when it is is applied appropriately you can't look at something and say this has won 60 percent of its games and say i'm going to win with that because you're ignoring the other 40 percent where it didn't uh more likely that you will win but it's that the, there's no guarantee at all it's that way in sports. It's that way in the game when we apply these statistics and analytics to the game, and that's what stats is doing. It is a it is a tool, but it is not gospel. Uh, it is not going to tell you. It, 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 it's it's not going to tell you what is better, heads up versus something else. I I say that I'm going to get argued against it, but I I really don't think 
that it's it's using a lot of data to, as Brian was saying, extrapolate something into a small subset. It's I'm trying to find the right words and I'm struggling myself with with it here. Uh, That's the side effect of doing live shows. I promise I haven't been drinking today. Um, But I think you guys know where where I'm going with this, though. Uh, Even though something may have a plus 50 on stats, it doesn't mean that it's always, all the time, going to be better than something that's plus 40 on stats. It just so happens to be with the data that that particular thing has collected that it is just slightly higher than the other one. I'll pass exactly. it back off to you guys. Yeah, I think that, uh, um, you know, if we can, I, I keep picking on Jon Snow just because he's kind of a lot of people's like whipping boy these days. But um, I think that if you were to look at stats and see that there was a tournament where there was a high performance for Nightwatch players and every single one of them had Jon Snow, then you can go ahead and say in that in that data set, Jon Snow was strong in this tournament. He was strong, but you're taking the thing that you're, that you do ignore is a lot of, uh, I think people take, they try to take qualitative data with quantitative elements and try and make that quantitative. You, you, but any good data scientist knows that you just, unless you're working with millions and millions of points of specific numerical data that has no qualitative factor to it, that's the only place where you can go ahead and put in predictive patterns. And even then, I think that's still a little dangerous. But um, in wargaming specifically, we have so many qualitative elements to the game. There's your opponent's skill level, your skill level, your the, the cards that were presented to your in your deck in the order that you drew them. When did you play them? What uh, what points on the NCU board were available to you? What did your table look like? Were there timed rounds? Did you have a pairing and did your opponent get scared off a pair because of what you had in your other list that you know did they lose list chicken or something like that there's just too many qualitative elements that it becomes difficult to extrapolate quantitative that that data into a quantitative measure to say john snow is the best commander in the game there's just too much going on there yeah i think uh i think another um point to bring up with that is uh you know when you have this you know this idea of meta and what is considered the best you're going to have a lot of players that are and i don't i don't want to say the word is scared uh you know they're not scared into playing what is considered the best but you know they want to do the best they can so you'll have a lot of people run, um, you know, and this is true for all levels. This is true for the best players in the game. This is true for, you know, players that are, like, super casual. Um, you know, if you have, uh, let's say, with uh, what, what big tournament just happened, I, I forget the letters. Uh, is it the LGT? Yeah. Okay, um, so the LGT, I believe, had like an insane amount of uh, free folk slash it was it was technically not even just free folk. It was like man's free folk. Well, how many of them, you know, because I would love to like do a poll with just the people that entered. And, you know, even if it was anonymous, like would you, uh, if like what was the influence of what of what and why you picked what you picked 
because when you have the best players playing uh, a certain thing that is perceived as the best thing, uh, a lot of times that can skew the data uh, because you know they're the best players. You know they're they're going to be taking something because I'm not arguing whether or not it's strong. Because I mean I think the data, as we've already mentioned, is true in in the moment, but we're talking about branching out from that data. And if a strong or of the best players is playing of you know something that is considered one of the best things, or even considered the best thing, you're going to have insane results, especially depending on who they're facing. Because I'm not really talking about player score, because I know uh, Carlo does an amazing job with with his like algorithm and how uh, all that breaks down on stats. Like, you know, if you beat someone with a bad score, your score isn't really going to change much. And if you lose to someone with a bad score, you know, your score is going to drop a lot uh, if I'm you know, not butchering that too much, but I'm just talking about straight up wins and percentages of win rates. Um, you know, uh, it's. I think it, it goes to uh, goes with. It lends to the idea that um, the more something is perceived as the best, especially if you're learning the tricks and the little things that you can do with something that's perceived the best, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, you don't have to start from the ground up. You know, you're already, you know, you're on a launch pad, already uh, an amazing player, because I'm not saying because of the launch pad you're less of a player. I'm just saying that when you're presented something that's amazing looking uh, and you've already understand how it works and then you play that thing it's going to give you great results almost all the time. Uh, but I think, you know, starting from that ground up, you know, that foundation, breaking off from that meta and finding something that isn't considered meta and just building off of it and finding what makes it tick and how it ticks. And I think, uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised with the results. Yeah, I think when it comes to talking about like why someone would gravitate towards one of those high performing uh, by the numbers thing, I think there you might have been getting real close to hitting on it, but it's you just don't have to put in the time to figure it out. Someone's already done that for you. Like, you know, I'm not going to sit here in my downtown Chicago apartment trying to whip together a deep dish pizza when Giordano's is across the street. Like somebody already figured that out <laughs> and I'm just going to go get it. That's the same thing that happens with why people do things like bring Mansa a lot. You know, it's not just that he's good, but he's proven to be a strong pick when you're going into a, a, a base meta. But like, you know, to maybe shift off the point a little bit, if one person, let's pretend we live in a universe where at least I want to live in this universe where Cotter Pike is like the free folk counter. Yeah. If, if one person shows up with that list at that tournament, they're all screwed. And then who's the best commander in the game now? Well, clearly it's going to be Cotter Pike now because he beat all these lists, right? But it's really not that he's the best. He just was the best for that situation. 
So like, it, I think there's a lot of value in trying to figure out how to pick the meta apart or the perceived meta. And then when you go to one of these events or go to even a local event where some people might be uh, taking that low hanging fruit, if you just throw something at them that they're not expecting, they're just like, oh, well, that's unfortunate. I guess I didn't see that coming. I thought this was supposed to be the best thing in the game that was unbeatable. I guess I was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I found a better example of what I was trying to get at. I'm looking at stats right now. And first off, let's just say Night's Watch is in fourth place right now. Can, can we get a, can we get a buff here for Night's Watch, please? <laughs> uh, but I'm looking at Baratheon. They're currently have a ranking of 15, and Lannisters are sixth place. They are have a ranking of 0.4. Now, looking at that, just in the the raw quote meta numbers, you would look at that and say Baratheons are better than Lannisters. But Lannisters are probably the best counter to Baratheons with their, their panic shenanigans, and they will offer Baratheons probably much trouble other than Free Folk. So just by looking at, well, which you know, faction is ranked the highest, you're, you're, you're getting too much data. You, you might be, by, be using the stats numbers just a little bit incorrectly. You're getting too much of the, the picture rather than you know, smaller individual you know, matchup-dependent things, and that's not what stat does. Uh, they, they, they do they do a little bit, and once you start getting in and start clicking on stuff and opening up like win rates and that sort of thing, but it, it's not there to say which faction is better than or which faction is a good matchup versus this faction. It's more of a a more all encompassing number set rather than you know smaller individual based. Yeah, you just have to look at some of those stats as environments. I think is a good comparison where like, you know, in Wisconsin, like, you know, 15 below really isn't that big of a deal or, well, I guess, let me rewind that. We'll say like 30 is decent. That's almost like shorts weather, but you go to New Mexico and it's 30 degrees, their pipes freeze. Yeah. yeah. Like that's, that's a, I think that's a good way to look at <laughs> uh, data from tournaments is that in that climate, the Baratheons were crushing it because everybody brought like double champions and free folk couldn't crush it. Uh, but if you were to go somewhere else where somebody's like, I'm going to throw five reavers on the table, your champions mean nothing to me. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 there's just so many factors that when it comes to wargaming, it's so difficult to boil it down to just percentages and ELO systems. Uh, I have to say your example is actually uh, good on paper, but I actually <laughs> this is almost literally my list, and I bounced off <laughs> off the champions, even with like uh, like in a million free attacks and a lot of charges. Things bounce off was, the champions. Bad. A lot of things bounce <laughs> off the champions. I thought the same thing. I was like, you know what, my my reavers with the insane number of attacks and sundering and flank charges, I'm gonna just make short work of these champions. No, I I bounced off the things and I almost got tabled. But I see where you're coming from. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> Crazy enough, red cloaks do wonders against the champions. I played Kurt a couple weeks ago, and. Uh, 
I was just having my red cloaks just dance around and his champs evaporated. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, the I, panic I, is definitely where you can get them. Well, and I, I, this is like, uh, maybe I'm just uh, going off on a tangent here, but there's uh, this, I, I have been playing Greyjoys off and on. I took a small break from them, but I feel like when you're trying to take apart a Baratheon list uh, outside of someone running Stannis, if you're still kind of one of these, if you're still fearing like the, the Jack and Melisandre bombs, uh, I've been really having a lot of good results with a Roos panic-based list uh, just because they not only crank panic to crazy levels, they do extra wounds through panic, and they also bring models that can really do some damage with like silenced men and things like that. It's, it, I think if you're, if you're trying to crack Baratheon, somebody just can't keep champions off the table. Uh, I think that trying to look at maybe a Roos-centered uh, Greyjoy list is definitely something you should try out. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah. I mean, Greyjoys are on the rise here. That seems like they have uh, finished their time in the basement that they spent uh, really, really ranked really low for a couple weeks or a couple months. Excuse me. Uh, but they're on the rise again. So that's, yeah, uh, that's when, good to see for you, Greyjoy fans. I uh, I I had a I attacked somebody with my um, silenced men, my fully loaded silenced men with uh, Roos sitting in the in the unit. And they were, I think I might've even had them on the flank and they were like, okay, what's my panic test? And I was like, minus five. They were like, uh, okay, I guess I just fail. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, you're referring to Roos in Greyjoys or in Baratheons? In Greyjoys. He, yeah. He's the, he's the, he's okay, the Greyjoy yeah. commander. Cause like, uh, with all of his cards, and uh, the silence men being like a mini uh, a mini corpse pile times two, and then having fueled by slaughter or no, not fueled by slaughter, intimidating presence. Like you're cranking some really hardcore panic checks. Oh yeah, uh, actually my favorite list. Uh, I was just telling because uh, we have a new player and he's Greyjoy, so I was just telling him about this list. It's actually my favorite Greyjoy list to like play, even though it's not like the best one out there. Um, it's uh, Roos Commander in Reapers, Ramsey two-point attachment with Theon uh, in Reapers. And then I take a unit of Silence Men and I put Euron one-point attachment so that they auto-start with that bubble. Mm -hmm. Then I run um, a Bowman. And then the last unit, I either swap between um, an just another Reaper, just because I love the, uh, the unit, uh, or I do like a, a Reavers with a one point. It could be Asha or something, just to throw out more tokens, because Euron will throw out tokens, Asha will throw out tokens, the cards throw out tokens, uh, Roos uh, has a card that throws out tokens, and then I run um, Eric for some more pillage to get the mechanic going, and then uh, Wendemir. Yeah, Roos is my boy. But uh, I, he just I, plays yeah, really I mean, well in a lot of different factions. Yeah, I, I, oh, yeah. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, fun playing with Roos, although it's been a little bit. I mean, I made that run with him Nationals, running him uh, exclusively at Nationals last year, and I kind of got away from him. Maybe I need to come back. Well, and it's just another example of, like, that meta mentality trapping. It's like, okay, well, I can't do XYZ because of these lists or these boogeymen. But just, like, looking towards some of these other things that may not have been extremely prevalent in your 
in your play, like you're just trying to throw the really good stuff against the really good stuff according to statistics or what you just saw take the next, the latest Gen Con tournament, like you can, you, you start to lose sight of what some of those, like uh, it's, it's like they're kind of diamond in the rough commanders or units or something. It's, it's, you, you just got to keep your mind open and try and try and beat the things that people are bringing, right? Instead of just kind of throwing a, uh, the same thing at the problem over and over again. Yeah, and that's the bright side of the meta mentality. If there a bright side to be found, is it does give you opportunities to run the counter to the big bad. Yeah, and that's you know that's what I try to go for if I notice something in my area is that I'll, I'll try to build against it and maybe even run you know the curveball that they may not see coming that might undermine what they're trying to do with their meta list. Uh, it's not always easy. Some of these meta lists are meta lists for a reason because they're pretty you know, bulletproof, but it's still possible to find some things that, uh, that will surprise that player that they may not have seen coming. I think, uh, you know, one thing that was mentioned in the previous uh, show uh, is, you know, there's, there's uh you have like the overall like meta you know it's like the uh, best way to put it is like the the main like what's generally accepted as like the meta but you know a lot of people forget that there's a bunch of little metas everywhere every gaming community even if it's just four of you uh to like four to I don't know whatever uh 12 14 of you, you have your own meta. Sometimes that uh, is influenced by the overall arching, like, meta. Um, but, you know, I think we've already kind of dis- uh, mentioned it, but, you know, if, if uh, you know, TTS is kind of its own beast because, you know, TTS, everyone has access to every model and as many units as they want of every, you know, they can build to their heart's content. But in practicality of uh, in-person uh, tournaments, a lot of times it's, you know, I would say I would argue to say it's probably like 50% or more of the player base are playing just what they own, and most people only own a couple factions. Um, and with that said, that really changes the dynamic of the meta. You know, people are just going to try to build to what they have to work with uh and that could be also further um you know changed up based like for me for example um if i'm going to a big event i'm only playing with fully painted models Uh, i could care less if my opponent has fully painted but that limits what i'm able to bring because i own every single faction every single model and plenty of each unit to build almost whatever list I want. So I could, if I didn't care about fully painted armies, I could literally just go online and be like, okay, what's considered the absolute best? Okay, I'm going to run that, and I'll just run that. But for me, I'm also limited in a different way uh, for the fact that I just, I don't know, OCD, mentally just incapable of bringing unpainted stuff for myself uh, sometimes I'll try to, like, if I think something's strong, I might try to get it painted before then. But if it's not painted, I will not play it. Like, I will play a what, in my mind, may be a lesser list because of that. But with that said, 
uh, in-person stuff is, is a lot more wonky with meta. I would say TTS has its own meta for that reason. You know, so you could even say there's an overarching meta for the game of Ice and Fire, and then there's a an in-person meta, and then there's your local meta, and it, it all is dictated based on what people own and what people play. I mean, at one point, our gaming group uh, of a consistent 12 people had like five Baratheon players, and that's all they played. So uh, it wasn't like, okay, you know, you knew you had like a 50-50 shot of facing Baratheons um, when you played, especially in like a tournament, and not because they were just playing it because it was strong or this or that. It's just what they owned. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes walking by some of the local game tables, you really get a, a different sense for as someone who's maybe a little bit more plugged into what like the overarching, you know, meta climate looks like. I think uh, it was maybe last month on one of our local Thursdays at Noble Night where I'd walked by a table and had seen that somebody was throwing down like three dire wolves. And I was just like, is this 2020? Have I gone back in time? What's going on here? <laughs> the good old 1.6, nine activation, Stark, three direwolf list. Yep. Yeah, it was really interesting to watch the game. They ended up doing pretty well with it, too, against a Night's Watch player of all things, a Jon Snow Night's Watch player. Um, but the uh, there's always always something to be said about just paying attention to what's going on in your local meta and don't feel like you're strong-armed into trying to get on, get on the get on board with whatever the the community at large is talking about you know if someone's if someone's response to your list is uh you need more activations when you're already bringing like a a 4-3 split or something like that just like don't even listen to them like just just enjoy what you're doing and try it out put it on the table and see what happens Another thing that I was thinking about as you was talking, Dave, when you when you mentioned the different metas versus TTS and and in store, I could almost guarantee that the vast majority of TTS games are reported stats, and I could also almost guarantee that the vast majority of in store games are not reported to stats. Yeah, and I I'm curious. What, I don't know exactly what that means, but I think it might have some bearing on how the numbers work out versus what might actually be played. I'm not sure. No, I think that's a, a completely um, plausible statement. I know uh, I, I never report, I have never reported a game on Ice and Fire stats in all the time that I've played Ice and Fire from when Night's Watch was first released. Um, but I know that when... Uh, War Machine at one point in time had a uh, had a website that someone from Canada was organizing where they were trying to get this big um, like data pool of how different casters were doing, what their win rate was, who they were matched up against, so they could kind of really dive down and drill down on all these different uh, data elements. And I know I was super into it. I was like, oh, for my first hundred games, I logged all of them. But then after, shortly after that, the attrition of just like, I really don't want to have another layer of doing shit to, to enjoy my game. Uh, so for me, I, I would almost, I'd put money on the fact that there isn't a single person in the entirety of the state of Wisconsin that's ever logged, in, uh, logged a game on Ice and Fire Stats, except for maybe me once, maybe, maybe once. Yeah, I think it just depends on your location. Um, I mean, I don't know if I could say all of Illinois, but 
I can say pretty uh, strongly that um, I think like when Ice and Fire stats like was first a thing uh, and like we had the guild going on, I was submitting some results uh, just uh, it was like me and my wife and then me and uh, my nephew uh, we're submitting our results, but you know, outside of that, no one else wanted to do it. And it, you know, when a game is growing like this, uh, like it is, you know, and especially back then, and you're trying to get new people, the last thing you want to do is like pressure them into, uh, you know, getting on a site and doing some extra legwork. Though, with that said, I do like Ice and Fire stats. Um, I would be totally up for it if, like, my group wanted to start doing it. Uh, but every time I've kind of mentioned it, it's always been kind of a, no, nah, I don't really want to do that, you know, or they, it seems like it's too much of a hassle. Uh, and I know a lot of people listening are like, oh, that makes no sense. But, you know, you know, people just kind of have their preferences. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, for me, like, I've never played a single game of TTS. Uh, and I'm looking at my profile and um, let's see, I have, yeah, the only, I only have one game logged that's just a, a casual play game, and that was me and Carlo, when Carlo came out here, we just played like a casual game at Family Time Games. All of my other logged games are only logged because I was in, was doing TTS, or sorry, TTS, uh, A Song of Ice and Fire stats. Like, they had everyone log in and submit their results every round. Uh, other than that, uh, you know, so to get kind of back to the point is that, you know, I I would agree that there is probably a mass uh, uh, amount of games that just are not logged that are in person, and I think that could definitely sway the results in probably, you know, in just about any way imaginable. Oh, um, yeah, the, the data would like, totally be trashed. Like, the, the data that exists right now on ICE, and some of it might balance out a little bit, you know, like, local metas might be, you know, there might be a really competitive local meta out there in Idaho or something like that, and they, they play very true to what's being represented on something like ICE and Fire stats, but, like, maybe a, a small town shop in Massachusetts has randomly 30 players or something like that, and they're all just, you know, farting around with Dario lists or something, you know, like that you can, there are so many anomalies that could just really tip, tip the factors. So I think like if ice and fire stats got like what I would, what I'd imagine is their wish that every single game that ever got played for ice and fire got reported to them, they'd start to see a really weird skew in their data and none of it would make sense. <laughs> yeah. I almost say, and with that said, anyone listening is not like bashing on ice and fire stats this is actually, no, I'm uh, not. It's just almost, that they're the yeah, only ones keeping track of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is almost like a positive thing. So uh, some could argue that not having all that extra in-person data uh, gives you more of a, a balance of data, if that makes sense. Because currently with, I'm assuming, a ton of the data being TTS and being data from people that have every option at their fingertip means that they're able to throw in results based on you know, whatever their heart desires. Uh, where, for example, let's say uh, Unsullied Swordmasters, practically impossible to get. Uh, I'm 
super fortunate. I own one unit of it. And uh, so the data set for that could just be like, they could be the best unit in the game uh, based on stats if we were to take results from everyone that actually owned one. Let's just say only the best players in the world owned a unit of it and they're just dominating with them. Uh, or let's let's say the opposite's true. Uh, I almost think that uh, the lack of uh, having certain models at your disposal could really hurt stats uh, for that unit or faction or whatever the case may be. Um, What's well, another good example? Uh, uh, the Queen uh, of Green like is Europe. a really good example because I think Canada, at least last I checked, still didn't have access to the Mother of Dragons box. So there's a complete commander that, of course, is not played as often as one would think in general, but because she's not available in certain areas of the world, uh, she's, of course, very low on that totem pole. Yeah, I think uh, the LGT or the event running alongside it or both uh, had to um, uh, restrict or ban or whatever, not allow uh, Greyjoy Hero Box 2 because all of Europe doesn't have it yet still. Um, or even, uh, not this one's a little a less impactful, I think, but Drowned Men, same boat. Um, so when you don't have something to even play with, this game in particular, uh, I've experienced that people don't really proxy. Uh, you know, there's, there's not a lot of reason to need to outside of the fact of maybe not having a unit at your disposal. But... You know, because you don't have all these customizable things like weapon options and whatnot, you don't really need to proxy the way I've seen other games have to proxy. Um, because it's just other games, and a lot of times it's not realistic to expect people to not proxy. Whereas Ice and Fire, with the way the models come pre-built and there's no, like, weapon options, there's really no need to outside of that fact. Um, so I think, you know, to kind of wrap it all together, uh, this, you know, when we're, this episode is mostly talking about in-person. You know, this, you know, we've brought up TTS a handful of times, but uh, we're mostly talking about the meta of in-person gaming. Uh, I guess really we're talking about all of it, but I'm focusing in on in-person. And with that said, that the data you see on uh, uh, Ice Fire stats, uh, is showing you data that is, I, I would say, more true than the data you'll probably experience in real in in-person games or in-person tournaments. Uh, with that, you know. So, so with that said, you know, branch off, experiment. You know, really try to you know develop develop your own own thing. Yeah, and. Like you said, and I, you know, I make fun of stats sometimes. I, I said that stats is not you know the gospel or anything. And really, what I mean by that is is stats is a tool, and like a tool, you need to apply it correctly. You know, not everything needs to be a nail to a hammer. Um, so what drives me crazy is you're on Facebook or on Discord, and you mention a unit, and you say, I actually think this unit's pretty good. I think it has some some good uses. Somebody will follow that up with a screenshot and show you that that particular unit is the 27th worst unit in the faction. And you're wrong because 
stat says that it's, it's rated this. And sure, like we said earlier in the show, that's a, that's an example of the past and, and what has led up to being now that has received maybe that negative number, but that doesn't apply in every scenario. That applies to that unit being used with all of the commanders in the army and not necessarily the best commander, only one commander that maybe that unit's supposed to work with. So if there's no synergy with some of the other commanders and that unit is brought with those commanders that have no synergy and it loses, it's going to get dinged. Whereas if it gets brought with the, the commander that's supposed to be brought with and it has you know success, it's going to be brought down a little bit by the, the earlier failures with the other units. So it's that, it's that broad scope of all the numbers that, that kind of changes some of the visibility of, of, of what a unit really is and what it isn't. And it, it, I, I don't like using stats as a justification for a position. You know, unless I think, unless your position is, I think that this faction has a 51% rate. And then you show me a picture that that faction actually has a 49% win rate. Okay, you win the argument. But when it comes to the the ELO numbers, I don't think that that is a direct indication of how powerful a particular unit or even a faction is in context of, of what it could be against, if that makes any sense. No, I think it does. I think there's like a lot of weird hidden data elements that can come out of that too. Like maybe I'm, maybe, you know, I'm over here as a, a, a top tier Baratheon player. And because I've decided to bring one unit of bloody mummers that just sits on an objective all day and doesn't do anything, but my champions of the stag are tearing up the table. Like now I've somehow rocketed that bloody mummer unit to being in a higher percentage just because it literally could have been any other unit in the game and done the same thing. Like, there's no story behind what that data is telling you. Yep. And I think that uh, can definitely be true for uh, a lot of cheaper units, too. Um, I think, like, if we're just talking win rates based on each unit, um, you know, there's, I think uh, it gets more truer the cheaper the unit gets. Um, I would say with maybe the exception being the, free for graders, I think there's just inherent value with a lot of what they do, but um, you know, like Asha Trappers, um, you know, or uh, you kind of just sit on an objective and, you know, you never really know how often like they're doing what they need to do, but this could be, this could be true and said about anything, anywhere. And, you know, just, just try to drive it home is that, you know, uh, stats, you know, like the stats is, it's a number, it's a tool, and, you know, trying to overthink it, I think, is can be dangerous. Yeah, I think one of the best things that stats offers outside of being able to capture what happens at a particular point in time is it gives you the ability to prepare for what to build against if you're going to a larger event where you're going to see some of that more um, prevalent meta reflected there. Like if you take a look at, um, you know, a, a point in time for like, let's say like a six month period, you want to prepare for what you could see at top tables because they're um, low effort wins for the people who are piloting those. Like if you're going against somebody who's an 
amazing player and they take a list that's proven to be amazing over a long period of time, their effort in the game is quite minimal. So you can figure out like, okay, I plan on getting to, you know, the top four tables. And if I see this list run by this person, I need to figure out what I need to do to beat it. Um, those are really important things. I think the, those types of stats prepare you for how to counter the meta. And that's really where I'd like to try and that, that's the way I like to use that kind of data or use the meta in quotes um, is to figure out how to take it apart. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we can kind of like get back to like the whole like meta aspect of it because I know we've been talking a lot of about Ice Fire stats because um, I absolutely think it's an amazing tool. Um, I, you know, with that said, I'm gonna you know mention to anyone that is not familiar with it or does not have a profile, I suggest at least signing up. Um, it's free, uh, it's simple, and even if you have no plan to submit your results. They have a lot of awesome tools in there. Um, they have, uh, you can look, you know, you can just even look up stats. Like I said, that's not the end-all be-all, but it is a nice tool. Um, you can, it has a stats builder, which the, personally, I like the, the builder uh, for the War Council app, but the one super uh, awesome thing about the stat builder on a songoficefirestats.com is it's almost always updated instantly uh, for, let me just see, just to make sure I'm not speaking out my butt. Um, so it looks like I was about to speak out my butt. But normally they immediately have uh, new stuff added, like the instant it's available. So, um, for example, the Hero Box 3 that we just were talking about, uh, the leaked uh, Hero Box 3 for Targaryens, a lot of times once they get good enough quality imagery and they have all of the data for it, they'll put it right in there. So you can start playing with, like, even if you're going to just... Uh, um, like Theorycraft. Uh, Theorycraft or, uh, you know, just um, proxy things. Like, they have it updated way faster than the War Council app. So that is definitely one thing I, I love about their um, stat builder. So, again, anyone that's listening that thinks that we're, like, um, dumping on ice and fire stats, definitely not. I think what Carlo and Mickey uh, do for the site is amazing. They're, uh, you know, I haven't met Mickey in person, but uh, Carlo uh, I've met in person, an amazing guy, uh, and they do a lot for the community. Uh, we're simply talking about the data, not the site. Uh, and I think because of how awesome the site is and how much data they have at this point, uh, the meta is almost synonymous with stats at this point. Um, whereas before, two years ago, uh, they didn't have nearly as much data, not nearly as many people were using it, um, you know, they didn't have nearly as much results. So back then we kind of referenced stats. This one, you know, I, I understand that stats seems to be kind of the main focus, but like I said, they're almost, uh, a song of ice, uh, uh, stats is almost synonymous with the meta at this point, that it's hard to take one without the other, if that makes sense. Yep, I totally agree. I, I And again, I am not disparaging stats at all. Even if I say that, you know, I, I don't believe that 
just because it has a higher number than something else that's it's stronger. Uh, we, we've already talked about that. What what I want to get to is it's it's fun actually to look at and to find you know particular units. You know let, let let's say you're, you're looking through stats and and you see in your faction a unit that you don't play very often that you haven't given a thought to is rated highly. And you begin to wonder, hmm, why is that rated highly? Maybe I've been missing something. And you start bringing that to your list. Um, and that can actually be a benefit to you. Uh, the inverse as well, you can get yourself a good laugh if you have a lot of success with something in your list. And then you look at stats and see that it's rated poorly, and then you can just chuckle to yourself. It's like, oh, well, I guess I figured out something that uh, maybe not everyone else has figured out. Uh, the stats site is absolutely wonderful. The way that they come up with these these numbers, it's not just solely based on time and that unit won this time. The whole al algorithm that they have incorporated is way beyond anything that I could comprehend or understand. Uh, I am not that smart. But the information that you can get the builder that you can get on the site uh, is all super helpful. And especially when it comes to running tournaments, I had not run tournaments on stats until maybe a year ago. And it has helped me out a lot. Uh, it just takes a lot of the guesswork, a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the legwork out of, getting your pairings, you know, figuring out your game modes, uh, doing the scoring, you know, all that stuff, it does all for you. So if you are running tournaments and you're stuck using, you know, pencil and paper and you want to get away from that, maybe looking for or some, uh, some, some help, give stats a try. Uh, it's not difficult to run it on there. Now you do have to get players to create an account. Uh, but if you, if you can talk your players into it, you know, get them to do it and run your events on stats. Because one, it helps the community. Two, uh, it, it will help you out with your your uh, organization of the tournament. It's, it's just super super helpful. So one point I want to bring up with you know kind of you know. Not uh, you know, not getting trapped in the meta with this mindset. So I'll pull one example, or maybe kind of two, because uh, one I can really relate with. Uh, right now, uh, the worst unit in the game is uh, said to be, uh, based on like the ranking of them, is House Clegane Mountainsmen. For me personally, I don't think the Mountains Men are some amazing unit, uh, and I would say that they're just good, you know, but, you know, decent. They they kind of, they are what they are. Are they the best option for the points? Probably not, but uh, I think they're fine uh, with their, you know, current version. But if you're tell me worst unit in the game, like, my mind just explodes. I'm just like, what? Like... How? How in the world? Like, uh, or another example that I can kind of relate to. Um, let's see, one, two, three, four. The fifth worst unit in the game, Ironborn Reavers. Now, those of you 
uh, that have listened to some of the sh- uh, shows where I've talked about it, uh, most of the in other than uh, Gen Con, most of the in-person uh, tournaments I've ever done have been uh, since version 2021 is uh, Greyjoys, and my lists are usually just Reaver spam, um, and I usually do really well, like second, third place, uh, sometimes like maybe fifth place, but we're talking, you know, usually like 20 people. Uh, you know, I usually, uh, I guess a better way to put it is I'm usually always, uh, or I should say I'm always three and one. Like I don't think I've ever not been three and one. Uh, and all of these events, Adepticon, uh, you know, uh, even with that, uh, taking third place at Adepticon with my Greyjoys, uh, and you tell me that they're the uh, what did I say? Fifth worst unit in the game, and I'm spamming them and doing really well with them. And I just, again, my mind's like blown. I'm just like, how? How? Like, I am fully up for the argument that they're, you know, not like the greatest thing in the world. But you know, when you start telling me certain units are the worst in the game, uh, another one, Berserkers. How some are Berserkers. I think they're better than they were before. We I, we had a whole episode on them. Um, how, in my opinion, they're better than 1.6 Berserkers uh, when you start factoring that um, they're one point cheaper, and then if you add that one point attachment in them, they're just better value than the old Berserkers are. Uh, you know, I can. You know, that's a whole another tangent. You know, uh, but still. A lot of these units that are considered the worst in the game, you know, based on like the stats and what's been shown, just has my mind blown. Uh, and that just kind of lends to the fact that we all have our own playstyles, we all have our own preferences, and we all all have our own experiences. Um, we play certain people who are maybe better or worse. We play certain uh, against certain lists that are better or worse against what we are using. Um, you know, for all we know, like, Mountain's Men got a bad rap because the same couple of people that weren't all that great at the game were running them and just getting their butts handed to them game after game into, let's say, their worst matchups. And then Mountain's Men started falling on the list so fast, and then as soon as they hit the bottom, everyone's just like, I don't want to touch those guys. They're, they're must be crap. And I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Um, I guess maybe uh, Carlo can school me on some uh, some stats knowledge. Uh, but this, you know, this is just kind of the way I see I see it when I look at some of the stuff on the list. It's, you will never be able to convince me that Mountains Men are 180 points worse than the Casterly Rock Honor Guard. You're never going to be able to tell that to me, ever. And one unit that you skipped over at the bottom of the list, uh, Brawn, the attachment, is fourth worst attachment in the game. And I swear, you can't find a list that's running a ranged unit that somebody doesn't recommend throwing Brawn in. I mean, oh yeah, getting getting free attacks off of the bag, bumping up your defense and morale values when you control the bag... It's super useful. Now, maybe the fact that he's used a lot maybe leads to him ending up in games where he's on the losing end. But he's a very common and a very commonly thought 
of good attachment to bring in lists, and he's the fourth worst rated unit in the game. It's crazy. Well, and, and I know Ice and Fire stats, at least in my my mind space, probably is pulling more data from electronic than real life. But it is also worth mentioning that if there are, if the, if bronze data is skewing uh, because of real life availability, I know it seems like hero or hero box two for neutrals and the 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 hand of the king set are really not easy to find. I, I know that one of my local players had been looking for almost two years for a neutrals hero box two and ended up ordering one from overseas. Yep. Um, now, with that said, the more I think about it, um, I would not be surprised if there's a lot of in-person data from Europe. Uh, I know stats is extremely popular over there. Um, so I could definitely see a lot of in-person data, mostly I would say probably for probably from tournaments and whatnot. Um, but, but I agree. I think, I feel like uh, if you're already playing on TTS, more than likely you're you're submitting results um, on stats uh, more than you would if you just kind of meet uh, a friend at a game store and then uh, you know start doing it that way. But yeah, because you're um, at your computer and likely pulling your list over from one of those sites, so you're you're already like it's ease of access. But I don't. I, I guess I don't fart around as much on stats as I probably should. But do they even have a filter down for data to kind of separate out what? Uh, the numbers look like from uh, TTS games versus in-person games? I don't think you can on our end, but I know uh, uh, on the tourney grounds, uh, Carlo uh, and I think both Carlo and Mickey have access to like a lot of data stuff that they can manipulate. Um, and I say manipulate, I mean that they can look into that uh, we can't on our end, and then they they'll constantly kind of talk about it on their show, which is always nice. So uh, to kind of segue into that, anyone that is not familiar with or has not seen their show, they do it. Uh, I believe they do it live um, every uh, every Monday. I forget what time of the day they do it on. I think YouTube. Uh, you can even join. Uh, I think their Discord and talk to them live and uh, and kind of give your thoughts. Uh, as they're doing their show. Just uh, be prepared, though. Uh, their shows are longer than ours. Sometimes they're like four hours long, um, but very great content. I li- I personally listen to them every Monday because uh, I work 24 hours every Monday, and it's always a nice, uh, nice thing to put on while I'm driving. Um, so... Uh, yeah, they they definitely have a lot more on their end that they can look at and break down. Um, so I'm sure that's what I mean by like Carlo could probably school me on some of the stuff that we're talking about because maybe maybe some of the stuff is possible, but we just can't see it on our end, or maybe we're just too much of novices to find it. Um, but uh, but to get back to like you know the main topic, you know, breaking out of your meta isn't always easy. Um, you know, it's sometimes you can kind of get caught up in, uh, I don't know if mob rule is necessarily the right uh, way to put it, but it's, um, you know, it's this idea that something is good and it's just generally accepted that it's good and you just, 
you take their word for it, especially if you take their word for it, you play it and it is good because um, then you're, uh, it's just reinforced in your brain that that is what's good. And then the same is true when people are like, oh, man, that, that thing sucks. Why you have it in your list? And then you lose that game and then you go, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I put that in my list. Um, I That's why every time we get like a new box or like a new unit, new anything, and, you know, I, I mention every time on here that I, no matter how bad it looks on paper, I always give it uh, at minimum one try, but really I try to give it like two, three tries, and I'll even try to I'll build it with a strong list and put it in there, or you know, kind of like a mid-tier list, you know, because the last thing you want to do is put something that you're iffy about in a bad list that's like you know just a hodgepodge of testing things and then you lose because sometimes you can contribute the loss to everything and not just the things that didn't work out. So I think uh, breaking out of the mindset of of what is meta uh, because in that mindset is what will keep uh, keep the meta the same or keep it the same longer. Yeah. One of the things when it comes to testing that I really like to put on myself is that I will build a list. And this, of course, like it, it's not easy to do this for sure. Um, so don't think that this is you need to do the same thing that I do. But when I build a list to try and test a theory, I will play that at least 10 times without changing the list at all against five different opponents, at least five different opponents. And I, during that 10 game run, I don't change the list period because so many times people like put their list on the table one or two times and they're like, Oh, these two games, this one unit didn't perform the way I needed it to. I need to switch it out. And then they go into the next, their third game and that unit that they took out would have been really good, but they don't get the chance to see it because now they just attribute the slot or the list as being poor and just discard it. So I think, there's something to be said. If you're really trying to test something to see what its efficacy is, you need to be consistent and not disparage uh, the performance of a particular unit or commander or anything just because you've only just just off of those one or two experiences. I think you really need to give it a good try to really get that good data set for your from your own environment, not just the meta in general. Yeah, and sometimes if you've found yourself falling into that meta mentality, you kind of just have to snap yourself out of it. And one of the only ways to do that is to remember to have fun. You know, nobody wants to lose. You know, everybody likes winning your games. But if that is at the expense of maybe your creativity or your enjoyment of the game, that's not going to be good for anybody. And if you need ways to, to snap your mindset out of playing the meta, you could just, uh, you know, maybe go and pick something that you haven't played in a while or several things that you haven't played in a while and pick one at random, you know, pick, you know, six commanders out of the ones that you don't necessarily run all the time and roll a die and build a list for that commander with stuff that you haven't played before. And, you know, give a shot. You might find something that you enjoy just as much as the meta stuff. And uh, if you if you are still trying to think in a competitive sense, then rather than going immediately and beelining for 
what might be the the top metal lists uh, look specifically for counters to those top metal lists. You know, investigate, see what those metal lists weaknesses are. See if you can find one and exploit it with your own list building. Uh, there are ways to to get yourself out of that mindset and be able to get back and and to have fun and and be creative on your own. Uh, you are not stuck if you don't want to be. Yeah, I think there there's a lot to be said about uh, you know being stuck in there and uh, and not knowing where to go and just kind of uh, to kind of reference, uh, I, I apologize. I forget if it was Justin or if it was you, Brian. You know, using uh, and because I, I, both of you had mentioned, it, I just don't know who brought it up. Because um, sometimes the the meta is like a blanket you know, like a security blanket, you know, you find comfort in the meta and knowing what is, you know, what to expect because branch, you know, when the meta isn't changing, people, a lot of people are comfortable with that. They're comfortable with not having to learn what is, what is the new thing, you know, what is the new meta. They're already aware of what it is they need to bring and do and play and it's all kind of laid out because not everyone has the same amount of free time to continuously keep up with an ever-changing meta. Yeah, Mansa's low-hanging fruit. And it's it's pretty juicy. So, like, I'm not saying that Mance is, like, overhyped. I'm just saying that, like, sometimes the meta is just comfort, easy. You don't have to get out a ladder. You don't have to climb to the top of the tree to find that ripest piece of fruit. Sometimes there's just a big old juicy Mance hanging about two feet off the ground. And it's just easy. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it's just late at night, but something about the phrasing and that just gives me a chuckle. So, um, I would say if, you know, if ever you feel like you, you know, the meta is not where you need it to be, you know, or want it to be, or if you want it to change, because sometimes, you know, you have, uh, certain things that are just too good they're at least in your mind that are just always being played you know they are the meta of let's say mance or this or that uh and especially for those out there that don't have the armies that are considered you know meta because you know the meta could dictate whole factions you know down to units and commanders uh, you know everything um you know definitely always be uh you know experimenting uh, trying to find your way out of, um, you know, the the meta that is, uh, for example, uh, neutrals, easily uh, the bottom rated faction right now, uh, but you know there there are a lot of investment in that faction to make them good. Uh, Brian had you know just mentioned Mark Rupp who took uh, second place barely, uh, and I say barely because he almost was first place. Um, with neutrals and one NCU against yeah, a lot of great players. 
I think he made a last a last minute list build decision that he thinks uh, kind of cost him that one that that round towards the end there. Yep. Um, you know, another one Targaryens considered the second worst. Uh, uh, again, Craig from the show. He almost exclusively plays Targaryens, at least in person. I'm not sure how uh, how he is on TTS. Uh, and you know, he took uh, first place with uh, with them at um, the LVO. Uh, again, Starks, third worst faction, just took first place at uh, Gen Con uh, by uh, um, Luke. You know, it's. It goes to say, you know, granted, you know, I'm talking more broader now with uh, with factions, but I think it's it says a lot that, uh, you know, you can play practically any faction, or you can play any faction and do, uh, you know, take the whole thing, especially when we're talking about in person. You know, the sample size uh, is big uh, a big factor as well, you know, if you take uh like the data the data would say okay uh this is going to be the best this is the second best and so on and these are the things that are meta they also have to factor that when you're playing uh at a smaller local or even like a what is considered a larger event like 20 people you know this is one thing i've found to be very true ever since i uh started playing uh, before Ice and Fire played the, the Dragon Ball Z card game, you know, I'd go to events with hundreds of people. And the meta was like, it was hard to break. You know, it was very hard. To, it's harder to break the meta when there's more people involved, uh, in my opinion. But then when you start getting, when the game uh, eventually died, and the tournament started going down, they went from, you know, like 400 people down to uh, like 50 people, 30 people, 20 people. That's kind of almost all of the sizes that we're talking about for this game. Uh, the variety drastically changes. Whereas, like, when you have 400 people and you have, like, a rock, paper, scissors, the, the three best, uh, like, things that are considered meta, and it makes up, like, 80% of the player pool, um, and they're, you know, it's it's what's dominating everything, and that's why it's the meta. But then when you get down to the smaller sample size of, you know, let's just say the average of Ice and Fire is, I would say, for a larger event, is 20 to 30-ish people, somewhere in that gap, um, or in that range, you're looking at a lot of people, again, that are going to play the army they own, they're going to, a lot of times, if they're a painter like myself, playing an army that's painted uh, or, you know, or, or whatnot, whatever they're... Or they might, they might be a fluff case bunny be. and they just want to play yep, their Riverlands list. That casual player that's just going to play whatever. Um, and with that said, now, instead of the meta being 80% of the player pool, now you have, you know, like 20% of the player pool being what's meta, you know, or let's maybe, let's be a little more fair, maybe like 40%. So of those 20 people, you have eight of them, uh, or is that right? Four, four of them being like super meta players, you know, or like finding out what is quote unquote the meta and playing it. And now you have this great player that may not even really keep track of the meta 
playing what he is very comfortable with, that is, in, he's very good with, and I think uh, we'll just even say this is basically Mark Rupp. You know, there's a lot of people, to be honest, but uh, Mark Rupp, I think, fits this description, that he's a very good player. I guess he doesn't fit the, the whole description, because I'm sure Mark knows what the meta is. But he's playing what he knows is com- he's comfortable with. He's mastered a certain particular thing, and he's able to overcome practically every obstacle with this thing he's created. And on a smaller scale, that's a lot more true. Like, when you have less of the meta to deal with, um, you're less invested. I think uh, um, another point that we brought up in the last show is that when when you lose with a list that you've worked hard with, it's it's a lot. It's the the loss is a lot more meaningful than when you've net listed or gone with what is considered meta and then you lose with it. A lot of and this isn't true for everyone, but I know it's true for a lot of people. You there's the sense of you feel obligated that you should have won because this list should have done it for you. When you lose with a list that is you're told the meta has deemed the best and you lose with that thing, it's a, it's a lot more impactful to your to your pride, I'll say. And, you know, this is even true for myself. You know, I don't do it that often, but there's times where I'll run what is considered the best thing, and if I lose with that thing, especially against something that isn't considered meta, I just, you know, there's this sense of, like, you know, like, how in the world that happened. Yeah, that uh, kind of leads into one of the biggest traps of the meta, meta mentality is the meta chasing and, and trying to to catch up to what the top lists are and try to run those yourself when you may not have the experience to back it up. I, uh, you got to stay within yourself and uh, what you want to do as opposed to what you think you should do based upon what other people do, which might be an even broader, you know, lesson to learn rather than just for war gaming. But for example, I, for the longest time, had a lot of bad things to say about Baratheons. I found them to be unpleasant to play against, and I thought that they were, you know, maybe OP in a few areas. And I constantly disparaged them either in our group chat or on here. And then I went out and I got myself a Baratheon army. And I paid dearly for the bad things that I said about the Baratheons because I felt like I was cursed for my first 20 games with Baratheons. I did not have a whole lot of success, and it was definitely all the dice's fault. So it wasn't really. What what it really boils down to is I wasn't a Baratheon player. That's not how I think. That's not how I list build you know, my buddy Kurt that I play against that I was struggling with for so long, he's been a Baratheon player since they came out. And I just thought I was going to pick up the army and then I was going to wreck people's face like I'm a seasoned Baratheon player. I'm not. I'm more of a Night's Watch and a Lancer player. So I had a lot of of you know growing pains trying to figure out how I run my Baratheons as opposed to how other people run theirs. 
trying to repeat their success. So it can get you when you go chasing what other people are doing and think that you're going to have the same success. No, that's not how it works. Uh, so it is, it will definitely trap you if you go met and trying to run the top tier stuff yourself rather than getting to that point with your own designs and your own builds and then maybe working your way up to, you know, what other more experienced players have built and had success with. Yeah, I think those medalists, they really, a lot of people do think that they play themselves, but it, it, you really, it, it, the player piloting it is what makes, you know, makes it good. Once they learn the the functions of that list and what is intrinsically making it a medalist, um, that's when things start to kind of, trigger off. I, I remember when Free Folk first came out and I got the esteemed pleasure of playing against Mr. Rupp at a Adepticon when he just decided to cobble together two starters and just decide to take the whole event. Um, I was really excited to get back home and get my Free Folk together because they were my main faction for the longest time. But I lost so many games because I just did not have his comprehension at the time. So uh, I, for a hot minute blamed the free folk for it but then uh i just stuck with it and then unlocked the army shortly thereafter and i think uh that you know that's a great point is that you you have to you have to really put in the time and i think with that said there's a lot of i think there's a lot of potential out there of things that are great in this game that just have not been given the time of day uh, for people to learn them. Um, and I know stats has like a ton of results of a ton of things, but I still, I truly believe that there's things out there that haven't fully been realized or discovered yet because stats is ever evolving, you know, with the data, the meta is ever evol- evolving. Now, I brought this up last time and I'm going to bring it up again just because I think it's a perfect example. Um, you know, way back in 1.6, uh, Blackfish uh, Foot Commander was considered like one of the absolute worst commanders in the whole game. Uh, and again, I was, my mind was bo- like blown because uh, I was uh, doing extremely well with Blackfish. Like I had a list that was so good against everything and every mission, with the exception of uh, Clash of Kings the like super old school Clash of Kings and Free Folk. That was literally the only two things it couldn't do. And so my second list uh, was just dedicated for those two things. But, you know, I was doing so incredibly well with Blackfish and I just couldn't believe it. I pushed pretty hard after finding out that stats had it enlisted so bad that, you know, maybe it was just wishful thinking, but I'd like to think that me pushing so hard on the show and on Facebook and just everywhere that he was truly a good commander, that eventually people started discovering it and playing him more, and he shot up, like, pretty high. Not, like, one of the best commanders, but coming from the absolute bottom to, I think, like, top of the middle, uh, you know, said a lot, I think. And a lot of people could contribute that to how good the Starks just naturally were. But I don't know. I still think that stuff like that is is what can show that a commander, um, anything, can 
be amazing. You just you just need to put in the time and effort to learn how the inter intricacies of that thing is uh, and how it operates, and to really uh, unlock its full potential. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's me with Cotter Pike right now, and this will be my second time shot, shouting him out. But I think that he has some really untapped potential for for Night's Watch to go specifically into the meta. Like, I, I have a feeling in my in my in my bones that he just tears apart man's lists. I just have a feeling, and I want it to be true. I just need to see it happen. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh I think you're not too far off though. Um we you know, our game that we had recently, uh you know, it was in my opinion, I think the points weren't necessarily close, but you know, you were a couple different little things change it change and I think, you know, you have a high possibility of even like tabling me um with what you had been running. So I, I don't yeah, think you're VP too far off. Very, yeah, the V P were very not representative of what happened on the table, that's for sure. Yep, exactly. Um, you had me on my toes, like at every turn. Like, um, you know, I think uh, I think a little more uh, investment in the Cotter Pike, and I think you might be uh, onto something. I'd be crushing Mance like all day. <laughs> yep. Um, so we can kind of wind down and uh, and uh, the show because we got uh, just uh, just over ten minutes left. Um, so kind of, uh, we'll start with you, Cyrus. Kind of like final thoughts on the topic. So, yeah, I mean, meta, as its name implies, is a pretty broad, pretty wide, you know, generality of, of what we're, you know, thinking about as far as wargaming goes. Uh, and if you are a meta player, there's nothing wrong with that. That is a legitimate way to approach wargaming and and competing in this 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 type of uh this type of game it it's there's nothing wrong with that and we don't mean to disparage you at all if that's the type of player that you are uh that is obviously your choice but we more more so are speaking to the people that may feel pressured into that mindset that they have to take that approach if they're going to enjoy or have success in in this form of you know entertainment and that's that's really what this is it's 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 entertainment you know this isn't life or death this isn't, you know sometimes we do get some monetary gain out of this from tournaments but more so this is a money sink for the vast majority of us in this hobby and it's for you know our entertainment. We're supposed to have fun. And if you feel like you're being you know kind of pigeonholed into how you approach the game, uh, try to step back a little bit and 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 think about it more in terms of what you want to do and how you want to do it, rather than what your community is trying to get you to do or what you know social media is trying to get you to do. If you put your list on social media and you say I'm in this today and and people pipe up and start giving you suggestions you, you you didn't ask for suggestions right you're just saying I'm running this today I'm I'm going to have fun with it but for people to put their list up and say hey do you have anything that you want to uh 
comment on this list before, then you're, you're open yourself wide open to all of the discussions and, and recommendations and criticisms of, of what you built. But if, if you are, if you built something that you're proud of and, and you say, all right, this is what I built. Here it is. You're probably still going to get, you know, comments and suggestions, but don't worry about it. Just focus on what you wanted to do, what you build it, share it with the rest of the community and, and have at it and let us know how it goes. What do you think, uh, or what are your uh, final thoughts, Brian? Um, I think when it comes to either trying to beat the meta or uh, sync up with the meta, uh, one of the things that gets overlooked often is um, what losing means. And I know you had alluded to it earlier that like losing can be something that you take real personally. Like you feel like there's a failing on your part as an individual that's caused this game to go awry or your ability to build the list is not up to snuff. And that's what's causing, like it causes some kind of mental distress. Like, because, you know, some people do just go to the table and think that, uh, you know, their, their gains are represented by their wins. But I would argue that if someone's going to a table in their early days of playing and winning game after game after game, when they come up to that first loss, it's going to devastate them. And they're going to wonder what happened. What did they do wrong? And I think the reason is, the reason why is that like losing is learning. And I think that's probably the best way to frame it. I, maybe I went to around that, that core idea, but I think that um, the person who loses the most games is, is learning the most. They're learning how to improve, how to not do things. And if somebody's picking up a, a medalist or non-medalist and just getting those W's left and right, chances are they're not really learning how to adapt to the game. They're just confirming what they already knew going into the game. So I would definitely encourage people to frame losses as learning opportunities. I definitely agree. I think, uh, you know, losses, you know, I, obviously losses, we've all kind of heard it. Losses teach you way more than your wins will. Um, and I think one of the best attributes you can ever have is the ability to learn from a loss and how you handle that loss, uh, whether it be, um, you know, how you handle it based on what, uh, you know, what you learned from it, but also just, just your demeanor, just, you know, how you accept that loss and, you know, how you move on from there. Um, and I think, uh, you know, kind of breaking out of the, this meta, meta mentality of things and, you know, finding your own lane, you know, your own, uh, way of list building and, you know, doing things, I think uh, is probably the, one of the more healthier things that you can do. Uh, find, finding something that's like truly that feels like your identity, because that's how, how I've always kind of felt, uh, you know, I've probably never felt more that way than when I was playing uh, Blackfish uh, with Starks. Because even after he started gaining traction, uh, he still never was like the most popular thing out there. Um, whereas uh, nowadays, you know, with me running kind of Greyjoys and Free Folk uh, as like my two main factions, um, you know, I I feel like uh, you know like they're still popular enough. But you know, just finding that uh, that 
you know, play style that really fits you. And I would say, you know, not, don't necessarily ignore the meta. You definitely want to use it as a tool uh, to gauge, you know, what is doing well list building. Uh, I would say, you know, learn from your mistakes, learn from, you know, in, uh, from everything you've done. You know, take that time to really test things out um, because just because someone else says that it's bad or that it just has shown to be bad, you never know if maybe it just wasn't given a fair try. And the game is ever-evolving. So, you know, I brought this, uh, to kind of wrap it up, I brought this one final point up with, uh, with the last episode is that at what point do we reset, like, the the meta or the stats, we'll even say. Because I know, like, stats technically, like, resetted technically, I think, with version 2021. But at what point, like, is only different versions what should qualify a reset? What if, you know, what if a reset for just one unit might be uh, uh, fair? Because let's say... You know, who's to say that uh, a certain unit that got a buff or a, a debuff, um, you know, after 2021, but until now, you know, let's say they just look bad, or I don't know when they did it with uh, Mountainsmen, but let's say Mountainsmen, considered the worst unit, um, well, was a majority of their games played before or after their buff, uh, you know, or or, you know, whatever the factors may be. So just keep that in mind. You know, uh, try to be that foundation for the unit that may not have enough representation or just uh, that foundation for anything that you decide to play. Um, but with that said, everybody, I want to thank you so much for listening in. Uh, it was an amazing episode. I was so glad to be able to talk about this subject again. Uh, I want to thank you uh, again, Brian, for coming on. It was it was definitely amazing to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a blast. I always enjoy talking about social situations in, in wargaming, so it's a good time. Yep. Well, and that's a great point. Um, this Though, you know, we're primarily just an Ice and Fire channel, this topic is universal. You can apply this to anything that has a quote-unquote meta, um, you know, not just Ice and Fire. Though we used a lot of Ice and Fire examples, you know, you could take this into any game that you can think of. Uh, and then, Cyrus, thank you so much for coming on. It was definitely nice to get back in the swing of things, and I appreciate all the work you've uh been doing yeah no problem i was happy to be here it was good talking with you brian i'm a huge fan of the work that you do over there <laughs> thanks i think i've got yeah, two more videos those... on deck right now mostly talking about uh our good old friend oberon and then some golden company painting is on the bend yeah and i wanted to uh, end with that uh for those that have not checked uh, out Brian's channel yet, uh, you can find him on uh, YouTube, if I'm not mistaken, at Big Top Gaming. Definitely go check that out. Yep, and got uh, right. are you on anywhere else? Uh, I have a Facebook page, but I don't fart around on there so much. I think it's, uh, it's, it's not, not, I'm not, uh, I don't utilize social media as much as I should, but YouTube is, is where I'm at. And I'm, I'm farting around in a, different discord channels here and there. So typically if it exists as an ice and fire platform, you can probably find me there. 
Awesome. So, yeah, definitely go check that out, everybody. Again, thank you so much for listening in. This is the Small Council Radio, and it is dismissed. still here.